This episode of the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast is brought to you by Archipelago Productions' three-part miniseries, Devout and Out. The show follows three LGBTQ individuals who have chosen to become or remain leaders in their respective churches. I've watched through this series twice, and it is easily one of the best series I've seen all year. It's smart, thought-provoking, conversation-launching, funny, heartwarming, and is going to show you a side of Canada you have never seen before. You can watch Devout and Out in Canada on the CBC Gem app or elsewhere in the world on YouTube. Enjoy. After all, there is nothing real outside our perception of reality, is there? If you wish to avoid prosecution, I would advise that you comply with our language laws. This is the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to the RCMP. That's the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. I'm your host today, Becky Shrimpton, and this week I'm talking to the executive producer, English program for the National Film Board of Canada, Anita Lee, about the documentary This Is Not a Movie. Its world premiere is coming up at TIFF 2019, that's a couple weeks from now, and I had the chance to see an advanced screener of it. And guys, it's groundbreaking, it's insightful, it's thought-provoking, it's very hard to watch in points, which is one of my favorite things, and it is deeply, deeply profound. Um, On the surface, the film profiles the career of the legendary foreign correspondent and author Robert Fisk. But inside the two hours, you're going to be taken inside the current issues that are faced by journalists across the world, the struggles of working within a career that's meant to hold those in power accountable and those people can easily destroy you, and the vital importance of the work that's being done right now in our own backyards and why truth and humanity are what's going to save us all. The film's directed by the unbelievable Young Chang, who, if you haven't seen his Up the Yangtze or his China Heavyweights yet, go watch them. They are unbelievable. I know, I'm gushing. This stuff is just great, and I love it, and I can't wait for everyone to see it. And if you want to see it, you can check out the film showtimes at tiff.net if you're listening to this episode from outside of Toronto, or if it's in the future and you've missed TIFF 2019, make sure you follow the NFB on social media. That's at the NFB. And follow us on Twitter, at RCMPod, for when the film is going to be widely released. And it will. You're going to want to see it. It's something special. So without further ado, here's my chat with Anita Lee. Well, I'd like to take you back. You started off at the CFC and you actually produced one of my favorite rom-coms of all time, The Art of Woo. I love that movie so much. Uh, And then, of course, you went on to found the Real Asian Film Festival. I'm just recounting all of your, you know, fabulous credits right now. So then how did you end up at the NFB specifically working in documentary? You know, that's such an interesting question, but a very personal one in that I had my son in 2004 um, and I had actually just finished a a co-production called Proteus by John Grayson. And, uh, you know, as an independent producer where you're your own lawyer, your own PA, etc. I had just had my son, the film needed to get to Berlin. And literally, you know, I just felt like I had this sort of breakdown moment and, and an epiphany where I realized that, you know, I could not have a young child and be an independent producer, at least for a few years. Mm. I got a call from the National Film Board. Uh, there was a producer uh, retiring at the time. And I hadn't actually applied for the position, but uh, they asked me to come in and uh, interview with them. And 14 and a half years later, here I am. 
<laughs> producing award-winning films. Who knew? Now, you've obviously worked on both sides of the fiction and the nonfiction divide. What are the key differences you think are in working on both those sides? You know, so interesting. Um, you know, I think there's often this kind of myth that uh, documentary filmmaking is not as creatively uh, challenging or not as craft-driven. And I think it's quite far from it. I think in fiction, in many ways, uh, of course, you know, significant time uh, needed on the script. But once you've got that script, there's a much stronger sort of map to follow, both for the director in the filming process, and I think for the editor uh, in the post process as well. The real difference with documentaries is so many unexpected aspects that you can't control. Of course, with real subjects, they're not reading lines and really needing to connect with your subject, really being able to uh, be responsive in the moment. And then I think also for the editor as well, you know, there's always that sort of moment uh, in post where you say there was the film that we wanted to make and then now the film that we can make. And uh, really, the editor uh, is is such a creative uh, ally with both the director and the producer to bring, you know, uh, something together from all of the pieces that you have. And I've just over the years producing documentary, you know, I learned something new with every film that I produce. And I, I just think that it, it's one of the most uh, challenging and creative uh, artistic mediums. Well, you did such a bridge with stories we tell having both those elements of the fictional shot footage as well as the uh, the actual narrative Sarah Polly was telling about her family. And then you come into something like this, which is just straight nonfiction, very clear, precise, dealing with very real-world, hot-button issues, very challenging material. And uh, Young Chang, who's this incredible filmmaker, if people have not seen his Up the Yangtze, which is amazing, China Heavyweights is one of my personal favorites. And both of them deal with the way the world's changing uh, due to capitalism in China. And then this new movie, Movie is about the changing world due to technology and shifting ideologies and definitely shifting political climates. So how did you get involved with him and how did this all uh, all come to be in this new film? Young uh, is a filmmaker that uh, we've known each other, of course, in the industry, and he'd been largely working based in Montreal up till quite recently. And so I really just sort of admired his work from afar. And of course, we were within a community of filmmakers and friends. And I had, I had known he had recently moved to Toronto. Uh, but the project really came about because I had the opportunity, maybe in about 2008 or so, to travel back from Tajikistan to Toronto. Uh, Robert Fisk didn't do all of the leg with me, but with Robert Fisk, he was visiting a set that I was working on. And I was just really struck by the contrast between what Robert Fisk was like in person and this kind of, in, in many ways, this I iconic, intimidating, almost, you know, persona that he has as this great thinker and writer. And when Nellifer Pazura, uh, my co-producer now on uh, This Is Not A Movie, first spoke with me about the possibility of doing a film on Fisk, I was really thinking through who could be that director. And I knew that it was going to be uh, a very uh, particular director uh, with a particular voice and also someone I thought, you know, really needed to have a, a senior level of uh, doc craft under his belt. We thought of a few people, but Young was really sort of number one for me uh, throughout the time. And, and again, he was someone that I was interested in working with. Uh, and Young came in. He met with uh, Robert Fisk. 
They connected immediately. We actually, in fact, sent Robert Young's earlier films, uh, which he was hugely impressed with. And so that's really how the, the team came together. Well, I have to ask about this because we talked about how the editor sort of helps with the craft and the movie you set out to make is not always the movie you intend to make. And uh, I'm really curious about there is there's no talk about the death of Jamal Khashoggi in this, which is obviously a very relevant topic to what you're talking about in journalism's and the risk thereof now. I'm just curious as to where that incident happened along in the editing process and if that was a deliberate uh, choice not to talk about that. It wasn't a deliberate choice. Uh, it did actually come a little bit later uh, in the editing process. We had not locked the film yet, uh, but we were pretty close to. And in fact, we paused uh, when that happened. And we had a discussion and we thought, is there some way that we can bring this in? Or is this, you know, is this something that um, we can address in some way? And just for many, you know, uh, reasons, but also it was not something that we were able at that moment to sort of respond to. The approach to the film that Young uh, established, which was really sort of looking through Robert's eyes and really uh, being close to him as he moves through the film, that we felt that it would be too difficult to incorporate. But definitely it was a conversation that we had. That's what I figured. I'm like, I figured this probably came somewhere in the editing process, or at least it was addressed, especially because, um, I mean, Robert obviously has a relationship to uh, the Saudi government and and the people in power there and the emotional ties he has within that, which makes him such a great journalist. We just had wonderful uh, access to uh, Robert in the making of this film, and he was incredibly uh, generous and really did sort of give us carte blanche in terms of uh, where we could go and, and what we could film with him. And one of the conditions of making this film was that, in fact, that, you know, he would not have any kind of uh, creative sign off. Uh, so it was really wonderful to, you know, start from that place. What we really wanted to do uh, was balance, you know, a certain amount of uh, history in terms of who Robert Fisk is and really the legacy of his work. But at the same time, that whole question of why now and that because of where the world is now, his voice uh, is so relevant today. And I think it was really those two elements that we wanted to focus on in this film. This episode of the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast is brought to you by Archipelago Productions. For over 15 years, the team at Archipelago have been making groundbreaking and award-winning films, television, and corporate video. For brands like Google, Netflix, Etsy, Time Magazine, and the University of Toronto. Visit archipelagoproductions.ca to find out how they can help you elevate and execute your next video project. I think it's really inspiring, especially for the idea of younger generations. And he's encouraging people to get on the ground, see what's actually happening and the idea of fact checking. And something that's sort of addressed in this is the idea of the 24 hour news cycle is everything has to go so fast and you have to get your headlines. There isn't enough time for fact checking. And uh, I think this really draws a lot of attention to that is that you're missing these key details if people aren't there on the ground. And then, of course, you're fighting the higher ups who have their own agendas. So when you're actually crafting the storyline, how did you manage? to maintain um, an unbiased, just the facts, ma'am, sort of way while still maintaining the humanity that Robert Fisk is known for? Those are all of sort of the questions that, you know, we really asked ourselves. We were really, really um, clear right from the beginning that uh, we were going to try to do our best uh, not to take a specific political uh, position uh, on the film. Of course, you know, Robert Fisk himself, uh, you know, can be 
perceived, depending on who you are, as having very strong, potentially controversial uh, outlooks. We really did not want to take that kind of position in the film, but we wanted to really provide a very human, uh, very intimate and deep access, you know, to uh, Robert as a as a human being, as a journalist. But we wanted to also, you know, have a point of view in the film that looked at Robert, that looked at uh, the work that he does, and and really uh, leave it open for you to really uh, think about how you wanted to come to your own conclusions, you know, about him, about uh, this the 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 state of all of the issues uh, historically and present day that we're presenting in the film. Of course, he is a war correspondent for a large portion of his career. And uh, so you have a lot of incredibly disturbing, very challenging imagery and content in this. And I'm wondering if you that um, maybe you should steer away from some of that imagery to make it more widely acceptable to an audience or if that that power of that imagery is necessary to get people thinking and understand what's actually happening. We had that discussion, especially around the uh, war images and, you know, the very, you know, sometimes graphic um, images that are in the film, we actually visited this discussion a few times. Even with some of the partners uh, that are investors in the film, we also uh, connected and had this discussion just to make sure that people were comfortable. And I think that, you know, where we landed, and especially very important for Young, was that, you know, a key position that, you know, Robert takes and he makes very clear in the film, you know, and 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 really the the title of the film, but this is not a movie, you know, this is real life and that we cannot forget. And one of the key things that that, that he uh, feels his role as a journalist is to remind us of these atrocities and what has happened. And, and he, in fact, says, you know, we need to, uh, you know, re- revitalize these images to show them again for, so that we don't forget, so that we don't commit such atrocities again in the future. And we felt that for us to actually show these images, you know, in this very kind of um, frank uh, way in the film was in was in line and what we were doing was supporting what Robert's position was in the film. And so therefore, uh, we felt that it was a, a, a comfortable decision we could make. Well, especially the opening. Uh, I won't give anything away, but even just the first few minutes of the film are just a shotgun blast of this is what you're in for. Get ready. Like there's no, there is no slow ramp up. You are in his world immediately and seeing what he's done. And then a quick flip to the future where you're like, oh, no, he's still doing this at at the age he's at. This is remarkable. Yes. And, you know, and that is really uh, the beauty of Young and Mike Munn, our editor, who uh, right from the beginning, you know, wanted to establish a rhythm and a pace and a style to the film. Young, you know, had picked up very quickly uh, filming with Robert that Robert is relentless. You know, he just has this pace where Robert will uh, let nothing go and he's just constantly on the move. Uh, and uh, Young very much wanted to bring that re- let- relentlessness of Robert actually into 
our own experience of the film. And I think the opening really sets that up beautifully. Oh, you feel it. And it's one of the things I have to say about the feature documentary as opposed to the new multi-part revelatory series we're seeing on things like Netflix and Amazon Prime is that you have to tell this story condensed and you have to keep up that pace. Whereas to have the amount of material you need for, for example, a six-part miniseries, there's going to be some parts that lag and lots of repetition, lots of callbacks. Whereas this is just like very clear, very concise. You've got a lot to chew on at the end. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, just the length of Robert Fiss's career, we certainly had a lot of material that we needed to make very, uh, you know, clear decisions on in terms of, you know, what would and would not be in the film. And that itself was a challenge. But I think at the end of the day, uh, we also, you know, did not want to make a historical biography. And as you said, uh, we wanted to have a, a, a very clear uh, creative spine for this film and, and uh, the story that we were telling here. Now, some documentaries feel like this flash in the pan, like they capture the zeitgeist, everybody's seen them, and then there's some ones that are more timeless where they sort of endure. Sometimes there's a slow burn, sometimes they actually change the world and continue to do so. So I think of something like Super Size Me, which when it came out, everyone was like, this is it, this is going to change everything, and then it sort of petered out. And then, then you have something like The Thin Blue Line, which we're still talking about and is still incredibly relevant. How do you see this film faring in the long term in terms of relevance and endurability? We're looking back at some of the key historical uh, moments uh, through Robert Fisk uh, and his um, implication. And as well, I think we try to really kind of raise questions around uh, journalism, media, and just how we all uh, are implicated in so much of um, what happens around us and in the world. And so I hope that it will stand up for the test of time, and and I hope that it will be a film that will have significant impact. I feel that uh, certainly, you know, as a team, uh, we really put a lot of uh, heart and passion in the making of this film. Uh, Robert Fiss was incredibly generous to us uh, in the making of the film as well. So I really hope, you know, it, it, it is one that will stand the test of time and hopefully um, generations in the future can look back and feel that, you know, there's some kind of um, value to what we've put together. Then I have to ask, uh, what sort of social responsibility do you see for yourself as a producer? And uh, do you see more producers and documentarians taking on this kind of responsibility in the new world? I think that's a really uh, interesting question. And I think that uh, just in the last decade, that question of responsibility of documentarians and what role does uh, the documentary play in in um, the social fabric, I, this is something that is being discussed quite a bit. I think that uh, there has always been a, a, a large ethical question uh, for documentaries, even just the fact that you enter people's lives and there's a real power relationship there. Uh, the question of access, you know, the question of who can tell whose story, you know, the reality that, in fact, it's been the Western world for many, many years that has told uh, the stories of and presented their point of view on the rest of the world. So I think that question is incredibly layered and it's a it's a really fertile space. And those discussions are being had in documentary circles. And and again, I think um, one of the reasons why I think as a, as a, a storytelling um, genre uh, so key to our, our time today. 
And that having been said, I mean, Canadian documentaries have been leading the way for decades, basically since the beginning of documentary. John Grierson, who helped found the NFB, actually created the term documentary. And uh, I mean, this is just something we've always done. And Canadian documentaries are certainly really well represented at TIFF this year. Uh, What do you think it is about Canadians that we're able to tell these stories in this way? I think absolutely. uh, As you spoke to, you know, the history of the form here in Canada, uh, you know, the uh, the master you know, who have uh, established uh, a certain uh, model of working. I also feel that, you know, Canada, uh, with its certain, you know, uh, geopolitical position, I think Canada currently today as an incredibly multicultural society uh, with so many diverse perspectives that can um, come to the table in their storytelling, I think especially the fact that there are so many hyphenated Canadians who trace their roots back or their parents' roots back to so many other places in the world. I think that there are so many Canadian filmmakers that have the ability to either have a bicultural perspective or t- tap into other uh, other points of views in a much more authentic way. And I think that puts us really in a position, I think, uh, to bring a very unique uh, and much needed and uh, and insider uh, perspectives on many stories that are happening, not only in Canada, but the rest of the world as well. Now, in terms of how people are seeing documentaries now, I mean, we talked a little bit about Netflix miniseries and uh, that it can take years, sometimes decades to make a documentary. What's the ideal way to sort of create something so that'll be picked up and what's the best way for pe- the most people to see it? I think that's the challenge always with uh, documentaries and, uh, you know, needing to um, figure out how we get much larger audiences to see these films. I think that definitely uh, the new platform such as Netflix uh, has really opened the door uh, in providing larger access to Canadian docs as well as docs from around the world. I think it really, you know, one of the things that I've always um, uh, talk about is how we we make such strong Canadian documentaries. And I think that we haven't had necessarily the same kind of um uh, distribution models, uh, and we haven't necessarily had perhaps the same kind of marketing dollars uh, to really uh, get our films out in the world and and for them to get the attention that they deserve. Uh, I think that sometimes uh, within the doc circle, there's a sort of feeling almost as if, you know, merit alone, you know, is going to uh, get your film out there. But I think we all know that that's not the case. And it really requires a very strategic machine to actually launch a film. And I just feel now that not that it's any uh, not that it's easy, but I do feel like there's a greater um, there's a larger diversity of uh, vehicles and means that we can tap into to try to get the films out there. And so I I, I do feel positive about uh about docs reaching more audiences. And I think there has, in fact, been some evidence uh, more recently at Sundance and various festivals of uh, significant doc acquisitions. I think I'm just kind of fascinated by the idea that you take years to create this one beautiful piece of cinema or a miniseries, and then all of a sudden there's a clamoring for a sequel of this, and then you have to rush that out. So I think of something like the investigation journalism behind Making a Murderer, and all of a sudden they had to have Making a Murderer 2 ready to go within a year. And that sort of rush to like reach the market is fascinating. 
fascinating to me. Yeah, well, you know, we have a uh, we have an internal term that we sometimes use at the NFB, and you know, we talk about slow cinema. Mm. Uh, you know, in the way that you know, of course, there's this trend around slow food and you know other sort of slow parenting, etc. And I think that one of the one of the uh, privileges that we have uh, being a public studio is that we often do not need to be uh, adhering to strong uh, commercial, uh, whether it's broadcast deadlines, other types of deadlines. And I think that uh, the the ability to take your time, the ability to really uh, uh, get inside a, a documentary, the ability for uh, filmmakers to really develop true relationships with their subjects and the stories uh, that they're telling, I think makes a huge difference uh, in the authenticity uh, of the film. And, and uh, it's something that we talk about uh, quite a bit within the NFB and, and something that we, we see as uh, quite a privilege that we have. Well, sometimes the story is in the amount of time it takes. I think of uh, one of my all-time favorite films, Devil at Your Heels, where they thought they would be shooting for a year and it ended up being five years. But without that full five-year time, you don't really get the arc of the story. Yes, and and there are so many uh, uh, films where uh, it really is, you know, let's say uh, an observational film that uh, the 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 story is, you know, following something over such a long period of time, and that particular uh, the particular insights and truths that you glean from having, you know, watched something and being able to really kind of, you know, see the full forest versus just the trees. I think that those kinds of films, unfortunately, are becoming more and more of a luxury. I think that uh, definitely uh, working with broadcasters, uh, you you generally uh, don't have those kinds of timelines. Um, but I think that it you you see the difference, I think. And within within the very wide uh, genre of documentary, I think there's many different styles, many different approaches to uh, documentaries, which which makes it so interesting. So in uh, this documentary, this is not a movie. Um, how much time did you guys take to create this? And uh, when did you know the movie was, quote unquote, done? You know, it's a little bit like PTSD, where when you've just finished something, uh, everything feels like a blur uh, and you can barely remember like when did it begin and how did it begin and how did it end uh, I'm sure a year from now I'll have a, a, a better perspective definitely it has been uh, oh my god uh, more than a few years in the making uh, Nelifer Pezura and I started to think about the treatment for the film uh, quite early on uh, before Young Chang came on. And so if I was to really kind of look at the early development as well, uh, definitely uh, about five years, I would say. And in terms of um, uh, when we knew that we had the film, I really think, you know, it was, you know, Young Chang and his editor, Mike Munn, coming to us as producers and, and saying, I don't think we need to film anymore. Uh, we've, we think we've got it. Um, and uh, we're going to, you know, show you guys uh, an assembly uh, very soon. And because we really took the approach to this film, because we had incredible access to Robert, 
we it was very organic in that uh, we would check in, see what Robert was doing, where he was going, and then we would decide, does that make sense? Should we go there? Should we send a crew? And so there wasn't a clear stop that we had in fact envisioned. And it really only was when uh, Young said, I think I've got it, right? And, and I'll have something to show you guys. Beautiful. Uh, I have one last question for you, which I ask all of my guests, and we talked about it a little bit already. What do you think Canada needs more of in order to support its artists? I think we all know that we, compared to so many other uh, countries, do have a very strong uh, public uh, and government support for uh, culture in Canada, uh, especially in media. I feel sometimes that what we need is to come together as a uh, community and come together as an industry and really think about how we can be bolder and we can be uh, more strategic together. Really think about what is unique uh, that we can offer in Canada? What What is truly unique that we have in Canada that's not elsewhere in the world in terms of what our artists can bring and, and, and what our talent can do? And I think if we really zeroed in on that, uh, we would really be able to bring original voices and works to the international stage. And we don't need to um, emulate other uh, traditions. And we don't necessarily need to create derivative work. And I think it's always tough to have a huge giant like the US uh, as our neighbor. That can also be a uh, benefit if we really ask the right questions. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Anita. I really appreciate your time. This was awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. If you like what we're doing, please remember to rate us and subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcatcher. It helps people find our podcast and Canadian media they love. Come chat with us at RCM Pod on Facebook or on Twitter at RCM Pod. Our theme song is by Craig Stewart and our show art is by Paul Stachniak. Join us next week for another great film from the wilds of Canadian cinema.